Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 300th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most accomplished and influential music world figures of the last half century. A singer, songwriter, and film composer from a legendary family of Hollywood music men who has won two Oscars out of 20 nominations, three Emmys out of three noms, and four Grammys out of 16 noms, leaving him just a Tony away from becoming an EGOT, the great Randy Newman. Back in 1971, the Los Angeles Times called Newman, quote, one of the most important singer-songwriters of this generation, close quote. And in 1972, the New York Times said that he was, quote, carving out an area of expression for the popular song that hasn't been rivaled for lyric sophistication and music complexity since the salad days of Cole Porter, close quote. Adding, quote, he bridges pop, rock, and Hollywood film scores with a grasp of Americana that embraces Stephen Foster, Aaron Copeland, and Little Richard with equal affection, close quote. In 1983, the New York Times called him, quote, one of popular music's most individual talents, close quote, and, quote, an extreme example of the singer-songwriter, close quote, who, quote, represents something precious, a serious artist working in a popular genre, close quote. And by 1998, the New York Times declared, quote, subversive young artists hoping to break new ground had better just give up because Randy Newman has inevitably been there first, close quote. That same year, Variety asserted that he, quote, belongs with Dylan, Springsteen, and Simon, on the Mount Rushmore of the greatest American rock era singer-songwriters, close quote. And a year later, The Guardian cut right to the chase. Quote, he is the best songwriter in the world, close quote. But you don't have to trust journalists and critics. Just ask Bob Dylan himself, who has said, quote, there aren't many songwriters in Randy's league. He knows music. A song like Louisiana or Cross Charleston Bay, also known as Sail Away, it just doesn't get any better than that, close quote. Newman was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2002 and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. But what is perhaps most remarkable about him is that he is just about as prolific and celebrated as a film composer as he is a singer-songwriter. Indeed, his film scores include 1981's Ragtime, 1984's The Natural, 1990's Awakenings and Avalon, 1998's Pleasantville, 2000's Meet the Parents, 2003's Seabiscuit, and, most famously, Nine different Pixar films, 1995's Toy Story, 1998's A Bug's Life, 1999's Toy Story 2, 2001's Monsters, Inc., for which he won his first Oscar on his 16th nomination for the song If I Didn't Have You, 2006's Cars, 2010's Toy Story 3, for which he won his second Oscar for the song We Belong Together, 2013's Monsters University, 2017's Cars 3, and 2019's Toy Story 4. Over the course of our conversation at Newman's home studio, sitting beside the piano on which he creates many of his songs, the 75-year-old and I discussed his emergence at the dawn of the singer-songwriter era and why, unlike most of his contemporaries, he has always preferred writing and singing songs as characters more than as himself, how it felt for his original songs to win the acclaim of critics and respect of colleagues, but rarely a mass audience, why it wasn't until the 1980s that he finally ventured into film composing and what led him in the mid-90s to Pixar and what he makes of his crazy 2019. In addition to scoring Toy Story 4, he also wrote a great song for the film, I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away. He is featured on Five Year Plan, 
a track on Chance the Rapper's debut studio album, The Big Day, which opened at number two on Billboard's U.S. chart. His song, Same Girl, was heard on an episode of HBO's buzzy new show, Euphoria, and he composed his first dramatic score in almost two decades for Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, which has emerged as one of the year's top Oscar contenders across the board. And so, without further ado, but with some wonderful audio snippets made available to us by Mr. Newman for this milestone episode of our podcast, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Newman, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast. Good to be here. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Los Angeles, and uh, my father was a doctor, and my mom took care of my brother and me. And I don't think there's a family more associated with movie music than yours, and I wonder if we happen to have a listener who is not up on their yeah. history. Can you just share who the Newman family is comprised of? Uh, it's comprised of Alfred Newman. There's Lionel Newman, Emil Newman, who were all film composers and yeah. administrators. Lionel was uh, head of music at Fox for 45 years, I think it was. Yeah. Alfred won nine Academy Awards and deserved them. Yeah. He, yeah. Was, he was really good. and He came out here in 1930, and their father was gone, family. There were seven boys and three girls in the Newman family. And Al came out here 1930 when he was like 29 or 30 years old. Mm-hmm. There's some debate about that when he was born. But and then the whole family followed him. And and, uh, and when you were growing up, were the Young were, bachelor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you see them at work as a kid? No, growing up? Yeah? I did. I'd go on the soundstage. I remember, I think I remember... All About Eve, a little bit of it. Wow. And a movie called The Gunfighter when I was really young. I remember seeing it yeah. at the studio. It was this kind of a dissonant Western score. Yeah. And I know I remember, like, uh, The King and I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Carousel, I don't know where he recorded it. I'm not sure. From watching them, particularly, I think, Alfred, it sounds like. Particularly, at, yeah. Watching them at work, did it make the idea of following in their footsteps appealing, or did it look like something that you might not want to do? Well, it looked intimidating. And whenever I saw him in later years, you know, at the piano working, which is what he did all day, every day, he he didn't seem happy back there, you know, because there's deadlines. And even good as he was, or maybe because he was good, he he worried about little things. I mean, he'd play me things. You know, what do you think of this? This, Do people like a counter melody? (laughs) And I said, uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that was when he was doing airport, almost the last thing he did. Okay, so now your own music education, I read, you know, it starts out fairly conventionally. You're doing piano lessons like a lot of kids at, a, at seven or eight or whatever. But I wonder what happened when you went to get actual training at UCLA where you go there, but you don't finish there. What was the reason for that? Hmm. Lack of parking. <laughs> Uh, in a way, uh, I, I came uh, close. They're talking about giving me a degree. I uh, <laughs> have to do something. But yeah, I was disorganized. You know, people have counselors there and they say, you take this, you take this, then you go. I, I, I must have missed that week because I, <laughs> I didn't have a counselor or anything. And so I, I, it was a bit of a mess. You know, yeah. the bad dream that a lot of people have that they have a test in a class they didn't even know they had. 
I had that happen <laughs> in reality and failed the test. Who is Lenny Warrenker? Warrenker. And how did he impact the direction your life took as you left school at 17? Our parents were, uh, well, I didn't leave school at 17. I was uh, 38. Boy, the time I got out <laughs> <laughs> the time I left. But uh, Lenny was, uh, their parents were friends. He was, his dad was a violinist in the Fox Orchestra. And he was friends with Al, I guess, and, and my father. And that's how I met Lenny. You know, we played uh, war and things like that. And, and he was always, I remember, he'd make up movies. One was called, I remember the title because I used to tease him about it later, Platform in the Sky, <laughs> it was called. And he'd make them up, and I'd listen. I was two and a half years younger than he, I think. They're two years. Yeah, two it's funny, he was the certainly the creative one between the two of us. Also, he was braver. You know, when I'd go to play songs for people, he would have set it up, and he would go. It was like Mickey and Judy, you know. <laughs> and I'd play the songs, and I'd be, you know, very hesitant about it. I was that way for a long time. But he was essentially, if I understand it correctly, like one of your big champions who said, you should do more with this. Let's go to New York. Let's pitch you around as a songwriter. Well, he was. I mean, we went to New York. It wasn't necessarily a pitch, but I mean, I think maybe wanted to meet, or we wanted to meet maybe uh, Jerry Lieber, yeah. which we did. And I did play him some songs, I think. And I later worked for and against them on uh, the Peggy Lee thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is that all there is? Well, so... You do now, at that point, go to work as a songwriter for hire, essentially. At what point did you realize, maybe I should start singing my own songs, too? I started as a sort of a contract songwriter when I was 16, 17, so I was still going to school. And I never necessarily, that I can recall, Lenny would remember better than I thought, oh, I should be singing and recording. I, I don't know whether I ever did, but a couple of record companies thought that it might be possible, A&M and Warners, and I signed with uh, Warners. And this was the dawn of the whole singer-songwriter era. I want to read back to you something, uh, uh, something that you said that I thought was interesting. Quote, when I started out, I was certainly in awe of Carol King. If I ever had a hero of any kind, it was her, mm-hmm. close quote. You've also said that your 1965 song, Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear, was, quote, the first song I wrote where I wasn't trying to be Carole King, it was the first song I wrote that sounds like me, close quote. Why was Carole King such an influence, and then what did it mean she to was, sound like I you? Liked, I liked what she did. Yeah. I liked the Chiffon's record and, yeah. and uh, all that kind of thing. I liked, it seemed like in those days we were interested in changes, you know, in chord changes. And she knew the literature. You know, she knew the song literature preceding 1954, preceding rock and roll. And she had had enormous uh, melodic talent, I thought. So that was what, I mean, hero, you know, I don't know, but I was scratching for an answer. Right. But certainly someone I admired and aspired to be like, I thought. But I wasn't (laughs) like her. (laughs) Well, I guess the thing that you ended up doing differently, starting with Simon Smith. I think it was Simon Smith. I, I say that. Because I remember it, but I think there's other songs that are a little odd before, Even it, before, but I can't remember what they are. Well, when you say odd, this thing that you were doing that was unusual, maybe not unique, but unusual, was 
essentially writing from the perspectives of people other than yourself, right? Yeah, ex- exactly right. As you were coming up, were other people doing that? Where did the idea even for that come from? I don't know. Shyness, maybe. Yeah? I mean, I, I don't know where it came from. Uh, I, I tell you, when I, I, I know I read things where they had that, and it really interested me. The Alexandria Quartet, for instance, where there's four different books, different characters, perspectives on things. And things are not as they seem with the one. And I can't do that in a song necessarily. But it interested me, you know, sometimes aberrant personalities. And the guy with the bear is harmless, but it's exploiting someone (laughs) somewhere (laughs) or some bear. But I found that it interested me. And when I write something that's pure me, it's difficult. Seeing that the nicest places where well-fed faces all stop to stare. Making the grandest entrance of Simon Smith and his dancing bear, they'll love us. Won't they? They feed us, don't they? Oh, who would think the boy and bear could be well except everywhere? It's just amazing how fair people can be. Is there any reason why you're drawn, it seems, to not only writing from the perspective of others, but the perspective generally of others who are not always the most upstanding people? (laughs) Well, it's more interesting to me than heroes. Yeah. I kind of don't believe in it, heroes. Uh, I've always thought that it's a little, I, I like it better, you know, when you're playing to an audience. This is theoretical entirely, but I mean, you don't want to be up there pontificating, even though you're raised up. I like to be on the flats, you know. On level with the audience. I don't really like to be that, because <laughs> you can't see. Right. But, right. but, yeah. See, I've always thought, mistakenly, that anyone could get my songs, you know. I mean, what's hard about them? Uh, there it is. My life is good, and the guy is clearly... <laughs> Not someone you'd want on your bowling team, you know? (laughs) What I wonder is when you started doing this kind of music in your 20s, I guess it would be. Yeah, I think so. Were these personas a reflection of your own mindset at that time? Because I've read, you've talked about in other interviews, you had something like a dozen car accidents by the time you were first breaking through. You've said you were a heavy drinker. Were you, what what were you upset about? What was your uh, issue with life? (laughs) Uh, I got songs out of it. When I, I was one time in a, I guess, in a, uh, with a, on Purdue, juvenile offenders were <laughs> at night. And I heard my father come in to get me, and he said, where is my angry young man? <laughs> <laughs> so I used it, but I didn't know I would. Right. It was I was unlucky. You know, I'd do something and get caught that everyone <laughs> else did, and, and I don't know what I was angry about, to tell you the truth. Right. But uh, I guess I, I was angry, but I mean, I, I knew a lot of ang- other people who were. Uh, sure. I wasn't a heavy drinker, I wouldn't say. I couldn't have done that. But, you know, we drink on the weekends, standing outside our cars. <laughs> you know, that was that. Sure. Uh, well, talk about how the first studio album, self-titled, came about, and also how... I guess it came to include a song that maybe is as covered as almost any of yours, I Think It's Going to Rain Today, which had already been around for a while. You'd already 
Peter doing Collins it. had done it. Yeah. yeah, it had been around. I mean, since that was the first album, you know, I had songs on it going back to, I don't know, it was 1969. It came out 1970, and and I had songs from three, four years before. And the final song on that one is one that I know people. I, th- I think you've said you you believe it. It's one of your favorites, and I mean, yeah, Salon has called this. Uh, a lot of people have called it a masterpiece. This is Davy the Fat Boy, which is pretty dark. I, I mean, just to set it up for a listener, basically sung from the perspective of a con artist, right? Yeah. It feels like carnival to me, and, and uh, tried to do that with the orchestra, make it sound that way. And the song was different. I took it apart and put it back together. And I thought recently what my career or path would have been like had I continued doing that with orchestra and, you know, not worrying about, about having a beat. Though, you don't, uh, having a beat is not a worry. It's a pleasure just to bong, bong, beat along and, you know, the whole notes. And, <laughs> but I, I, I wonder what, if I'd continued to work that hard, as hard as I worked on that arrangement, on stuff. David the fat boy David the fat boy It seems like you were never even at the beginning of a career when people are often anxious to prove themselves or make it big or whatever your first two albums the second one came 2 years later 12 songs in, in 1970 these were not huge commercial successes no. I think that probably the reason you started touring after that was at least in part because you got to drum up some excitement around this. It doesn't seem like you ever really were willing to compromise your own vision. Well, to-, to say I could. <laughs> you know, it's not like uh, I've heard people say, oh, uh, not lately. But, you know, uh, Beethoven and Mozart, you know, they, they could do, you know, do this today, you know, great. Well, there's no way of telling us so stupid. But, <laughs> but it isn't necessarily so. It isn't necessarily so that Leonard Bernstein, you know, a schooled musician capable of writing great songs, could write pop music. In fact, he proved he couldn't write <laughs> pop music, you know, the mass and things like that. But it, it, isn't, it isn't like, you know, oh, anyone can do it. I mean, I'm not sure that I could have, you know, done that. A mass I, I think, I mean, I got the messages. I mean, I got the message that Think It's Gonna Rain is real popular. And that feels like home is real popular. Those songs weren't, frankly, hard to write. Isn't that interesting? I, I could do that, but I just didn't. I haven't. So the third album in '72, "Sail Away," has been chosen by Rolling Stone one of the 500 greatest albums of all time. It's on a lot of lists like that. 500. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're three, 300 something. They 300, put it. So yeah. 384. <laughs> but it opens with a title track that a lot of people think is your greatest song ever basically again and i'll always obviously correct me if i'm saying anything wrong but a guy pitching people in africa to come to america not really necessarily realizing they're gonna be slaves and exactly climb aboard little walk sail away with me sail away 
I understand the framing of sort of adopting somebody else's personality for a song, but the idea of something like that, of that particular song, let's say, which I, I read took six months to come together in terms of arrangements or whatever. What It might have. I was going down the wrong road in part. It wasn't six months of uh, grind like you do on a, the weeks you have on a movie. But I got the idea in a sort of special way, this guy whose name I can't recall, but he was married to Leslie Caron, was going to have the money to make a movie. And he wanted to give pop music people 10 minutes apiece. Like, I think he mentioned Cocker, uh, myself, uh, Van Morrison, to see what they might do. So I had an idea of a guy in a clearing recruiting people for the Charleston market. And I had a sea shanty before it, you know, sort of a mock Irish sea shanty. And that's what I thought of with my 10 minutes. Still an unusual idea, but I'll tell you, how else are you going to write about it? Yeah. What are you going to say? Slavery is bad? You know. (laughs) But it seems as American history and, and particularly race, are those interests of yours apart from music even? Yes, I think so. I've written about it a, a number of times. Yes, I'm interested in good things happening in that area. Yeah. And I guess I think the best thing I can do is write about it. I've done it, but there's always new things. Yeah. Well, on that same album, the second song is something I want to use to ask you a question. The second song, Lonely at the Top, I believe you wrote it for Sinatra. And the uh-huh. question is, as your own singer-songwriter career is taking off, were you still interested in writing for other people? I still was. I mean, I still had my old uh, habits. I mean, sure, that idea I thought was good for him. I was always wrong. I mean, people didn't want it. I mean, they, they said, I mean, how could you think he'd do that? And I thought, I, I, I said, I think it would be hip, you know, making fun of all that leaning against the lamppost so lonely, you know. He's not lonely. Right. Or he may be, but, right, you know, right. it's hard to have sympathy for it. But I like that kind of showbiz kind of, uh, you know, Toastmaster Toastmaster General, Mr. Georgie Jessel. (laughs) How about another sign at the seventh, political science? You've never been somebody, there are a lot of people at the time that you were doing these albums at the early in your career who are writing overtly protest songs or, you know, sort of political activist songs. It doesn't seem like you would ever do something so obvious, but this was in a way your version of that, right? Yeah, I've I've done it other times. You know, I wrote a song called uh, I'm Dreaming of a White President, (laughs) Uh, and it was between albums, so hasn't gone on on one yet but it's probably true that i wouldn't i would if i had it you know there's nothing wrong with emotion straight you know unalloyed that's completely what music is supposed to do sometimes what i've chosen to do with the medium you know the stuff that we've been talking about this character in character is maybe not a great idea you know i wouldn't advise (laughs) any kids to do it i've done all right but I haven't done as all right as, like, Neil Diamond, you know? How do you measure all right? 
oh, you know, two weeks at the Greek. <laughs> I don't know. You know, just just a gigantic success. You know, I got what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted people who know music and are, you know, expert in some kind of way to like what I was doing. Yeah. And they did pretty much, you know. And now I think I'd rather be Neil Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> With the fourth studio album, you did something, The Good Old Boys in 1974, that I think is, it may be unique in your work, is to have a just a concept album where it runs through the entire oh, a theme, right? Yeah. Almost, yeah. And, and in this case, it's the American South, and we're talking about... Rednecks, where you're writing from the perspective of a of a Southern racist. We're talking about Louisiana, 1927, which I want to ask you about because that took on a whole new life after uh, Katrina. You have a history with the South yourself. Oh yeah, I do. My mother was from New Orleans, and uh, I was born in Los Angeles, but went to New Orleans when I was a week old, maybe two weeks old, and we stayed there till I was three, and I would go back in the summers till I was 11, 12. So. For me, it was the other place. I mean, it was real different. It had a big river, and it rained in the summer and in the afternoon, and it was really humid, and my mom's family was down there, and it was a different kind, kind of thing, different kind of family. People mythologize it very much so, and I do to some extent, too. I dig in harder into my southern heritage, which is minuscule, <laughs> than... You might look askance at it, you know, it's like, you know, Jesus, you know. But I don't like, and I've written, I think, songs in that voice, I can't remember, a professional Southerner, you know, like, ah, yeah, we, we are good old boys and all that. Uh, this is bullshit. Well, so Rednecks, I guess, though, is sort of the example of adopting the persona of the least becoming Southerners, right? The Well, not in that, to tell you the truth, the song is about, as you probably know, it's this Southern guy who was watching his governor, presumably, you know, on television, and they were rude to him. Which really happened. Which really happened, yeah, I saw it. Dick Cavett with uh, I th I thought, I thought the, Lester Maddox. The audience was rude. Yeah. And I thought, if I were a Southerner, if I were uh, from Georgia, I would have been offended by what I saw there. So I wrote a song in his guise, and in the song, he mentions all the ghettos of the North that, you know, you don't have any moral superiority over us, he's saying. And it's true. Mm -hmm. Straight ahead true. And uh, that's what the guy means to me. Is it possible to get too lost in one of these characters to the extent that you're true to the character, but it is dangerous when it's the song goes out? Well, yeah, because, I mean, just to not to beat around, I don't want to beat around the bush. I mean, th these days, a song with a guy, you know, using the N-word yeah, is yeah. not going to go over the way it might have once. It never went over. <laughs> I, I'd the, hope not, the, yeah. The, 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 the N-word never went over, but the guy would have used it. So, oh, yeah, you're asking, is that going too far? Because the guy would use the word. Definitely he would. The ultimate thing for you is be true to the character. Yeah. I mean, uh, admittedly, using that word is right on the borderline, or over it, maybe. But, I mean, I, I it isn't quite the ultimate. Um conscious of uh, being offensive you know sometimes I just I didn't know short people's offensive <laughs> We're coming until to that. I got there <laughs> right but uh, no I don't regret that though admittedly it is a close call I and mean, I think these days you preface a performance of that with oh, yeah, some context sure yeah we're in it we're in it we don't 
the other one, though, I just want to come back to is Louisiana, because while that might ostensibly seem to be about the great Mississippi flood of 1927, there's actually some, as usual with you, some double meaning, I think, there as well, right? What is it when you talk about they're trying to wash us away and some Mm -hmm. of that? You know, the thing down there is, the key to a lot is, they don't like being told what to do. Particularly, I think, by (laughs) the North, which is, Washington is up in the North, and New York is in the North. So, they're trying to wash us away as picking an enemy out of the air, which people do. And clouds blow in from the North, which they don't really. I mean, (laughs) the weather comes from the South, almost always. But it was just the idea that the North is coming to get us. That's right. That was the idea. You were a step ahead of me. I want to ask you about Short People, which is on Little Criminals 1977, the fifth studio album. And interestingly, the song that of all of your songs was the biggest hit, went to number two (laughs) uh, on the Billboard Hot 100, but also caused a lot of crap. I just want to let people know here, banned by radio stations, protested by people there. In fact, I think you even got death threats uh, (laughs) on behalf of vertically challenged people. Why did you go after us on that one? I'm just... Oh, I... I, I well, the, the reason I wrote the song is I needed an up song for the album. That, yeah. that, so I had that lick in mind, and it just came out. I mean, it was so clear to me that the guy in the song was loony. There's no cabal against short people in the country. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no... No one's plotting. I was surprised. I, I must admit that I was insensitive a bit. I thought about kids in junior high, you know, where things, everything counts or something, and, oh, they're playing your song and things like that, but... Would you have ever uh, guessed, though, writing it, that that would be the song that became not only controversial, but also so successful? I I didn't let any thought it was a hit, and that is not a kind of conversation we had very often. You know, that wasn't what I was doing. I wasn't doing things that people would actually like. (laughs) (laughs) Six studio albums in 79, Born Again. This was the sixth also in just 11 years. You were pumping them out at the beginning. Yeah, sort of, yeah. <laughs> But then over the next 27 years, three more. It slowed down, but it wasn't because you were not working. You're focused. I was working, yeah. You were working, but it seems like film scoring and songwriting eventually entered the picture. And I just wonder, starting in the early 80s with Ragtime and The Natural and some of those, how did later than most, why did you come to film scoring? Because 
that's what I always thought I would do. The family business. Uh, the, the family business, and, and there were offers, and I turned them down, I think, and I was a little concerned that I was turning them down because I was afraid. You know, It's one thing to have a family that's in the business and all, and you can ask a question maybe, but to have them all looking at you when you're actually doing it can be a little difficult. So I didn't think about it very much. First picture I did, Cold Turkey, had Arthur Morton as orchestrator, you know, who worked with Jerry Goldsmith and uh, was, was a great man. And I knew him in that guise. And so I was afraid for three quarters of the picture to tell him anything. I just give him the thing and I didn't even say, maybe this could be strings, maybe this could be what's. <laughs> and finally he said, why don't you, you know, get an idea. <laughs> and so I did. And then ever since I've done it. I read that a kind of maybe a, a big confidence booster for you early on with film scoring was with The Natural. Your Uncle Lionel was still around. And I think he was hanging out with John Williams at yeah, one point. Yeah. At five o'clock, they'd get together and have a drink or something. Johnny was working on whatever. Always working on something. And uh, he said, Ryan, come in here. And it was always feel like a little boy, you know, in the, that context. As a matter of fact, you know, I was working down there. I'm not sure I was working there. I, I you know, ran a Thermofax machine and made copies of music and then would mark them up for the engineer. I learned a hell of a lot doing that, now that I recall. But I can't remember whether I was still working. And he said, come in, I go in there. And he says, you know, we, John and I were listening to this album. He says, you know, it's really very good. So well, well conducted, too. And Johnny was sort of nodding, you know, and that was it. I got him later <laughs> for that. I, I went in there and said, you know, they were sitting there just the same way. I said, you know, there's a drummer in New York who uh, is getting triple scale. And then I left. And as I, I heard him, triple scale, the drummer, what, you know, what the <laughs> fuck is this? <laughs> but that meant a lot to you to have... Sort of the generation uh, ahead of sort you. Sort of. Right? Wasn't enough. No, wasn't they enough? They should have been more enthusiastic and told me something about your own yeah, work yeah i really think i don't think that tom my cousin tom was yeah. a film composer and david got much either why do you think that is is it that they were just so focused on their own stuff or there's a sense of competition they're worried the next generation's going to take them over or what what was it i think they were worried for us and uh, about us you know worried that we would besmirch the name or something. Now, that may not be quite fair. I don't know what Al... Al worked all the time, just like Johnny Williams does, and then he'd have a couple of drinks, and that was it. It was his day, forever and every day. Hmm. Never went on a vacation, nothing. But I, I don't know what it was, but I'll tell you this. One time, Al... Lionel was on the stand as a, as a young man, and Al, you know, was listening to what he was doing, and he just really lit into Lionel. On, when he was on the stand. And Lionel did the same thing to me. I was doing something for Peyton Place, library music. And I said, what are you guys? It's shit. Like this. And he's roaming like that. And, you know, and you're up on the stand, it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I would never do it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Just generally speaking, because you started to do more, you know, the pace of scores picked up, Awakenings, Avalon, eventually years later meet the parents and so many of course the pixar and disney movies but how does it work for you when you're composing for a film do you only commit to do a score after seeing a script or do you need to see a finished film or what makes you sign up to do something i like to see a finished film with the animated stuff that's impossible so i looked at storyboards and i, I was doing 
two or three at once. I was doing James and the Giant Peach and Toy Story 1. Oh, I wrote songs for a movie called Cats Don't Dance. Mm -hmm. And those are different. But usually I like to see see it because I can't, from the script, I can't tell what it's going to look like. Maybe others can. I can't. How about the collaboration with the director? How does a director communicate with you? Is it somebody saying, I'm looking for this, please, you know, can you do this? Or is it saying generally, what ideas do you have to make this work? And just how does that work? <laughs> you, you're praying. Let, let me have one of those. <laughs> they indicate what they want, usually. And I've been lucky. I mean, another way to pick movies to do is if you, if you can stand to be in the same room with the director. And in, in cases of these pictures that I've done, I, 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 they're all right. You know, I was not, very lucky. Well, not to, I don't want to. There are so many positive experiences, I, I, oh, sure but I'm just going to bring up one yeah. because I think it, it might be illustrative of how this can go wrong. And if for, for people that, you know, it sounds like Seabiscuit was not a wonderful experience. No, it wasn't. That wasn't. Uh, and nor was uh, Air Force One I did a score mm-hmm. for. It would have been the best score I ever did, I think. Really? Yeah. So what went wrong there? I don't know what went wrong there. Uh we knew that Wolfgang Peterson could be difficult about things he wanted. So at the beginning, when we're looking at it, he's in there, and I had a music editor take down his ideas musically. And so every little, and he'd say, and then it goes, boom, woof. We put down, boom, woof, and <laughs> like that. And I did it all. But uh, he didn't like it. I mean, I'm sure he has a good reason. But, and and uh, uh, I thought it was okay. But and Sea Biscuit, I mean, it, I think Sea Biscuit. I don't know what he had in mind. I, I, he slowed everything down. If he could have made, I think, a documentary, he would have. Would he have. wanted it to be the words he wrote, which were, you know, quite beautiful. Very often, over narration. You know, he, he said there was a race they had. The Santa Anita Derby was on, and so they go into the stretch, and boom! I said, you pick. I said, well, we'll pick it up there, you know, and it'll. Follow him in, and he wins. It's hooray! Big deal. He says, "Randy, this movie isn't about the horse." I said, "What the hell is it about?" And he said, uh, "We thought it was about the depression and the way things were, and that's yeah. what interested him." Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess you can. He's a smart fellow. Have disagreements, yeah. So, so we slowed down what I did, which you can't do. He did that without consulting you. Well, they don't have to. They don't have to consult you. They just do it. So uh, he wasn't. He wasn't awful. Yeah. But it wasn't something. I'm proud of some of it, and 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 others, other parts less so. With a, let's say you do the greatest score of your life, based on your experience, observing your uncle's compositions, making your own, listening to everybody else, should a great score be noticeable to an audience? Well, if it's a great score, where you can say, well, that's a great score, it will be, at least in part, noticeable. It isn't necessary for a score to be great. If it helps the movie tremendously, that's what it's supposed to do, and that's all. But there's there's always a tenant to that is some exposed things, if you're going to call it a great score. Like people might call Lawrence of Arabia a great score, say. I don't know whether I would or not, but maybe. But it's got exposed moments there. Withering Heights by Alfred is a great score, as is Song of Bernadette. People not as familiar with that as they are with uh, 
with Lawrence, but and occasionally, inevitably, he's you know it's about Lourdes and the the grotto and the miracle that happens, and that's music is out front there. It's, it's for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as you're film scoring portion of the of your career is taking off you continued to do studio albums and the one that i want to go to next is number seven trouble in paradise in 83 because this has one of the songs that i think maybe of all of yours seems to me could have been most misunderstood by people which is i love la it's been embraced by the olympics the dodgers the lakers everybody it's the (laughs) the anthem but but the the subversive thing here is that it's actually for all the upbeat you know cheerleading sound of it you're not highlighting things that people from la should be particularly proud of right no unless you're proud of the imperial highway (laughs) there's nothing taller on it than you are right that's not quite true, but anyway, particularly <laughs> not now. But, yeah, you can't write a Chamber of Commerce song about a big American city now. I don't think you can. Well, but in this case, it's not like you were itching to do a song about L.A., right? It was sort of a dare? No, it was a suggestion. Don Henley suggested that a lot of people were writing L.A. songs, but I was actually from here, which is true. So I should try and write one. Look at that mountain. Look at those trees. Look at that bum over there, man, he's down on his knees. Look at these women, ain't nothing like them nowhere. Century Boulevard, reloaded. Victory Boulevard, reloaded. Santa Monica Boulevard, reloaded. Sixth Street. That raises something I should have asked you about earlier, which is, can you explain for people how, what your, the roots of your relationship with the Eagles was? Because I think they were singing back up on Rednecks, and you guys have a long history. Well, they were the best background singers. Lenny knew, knew them, he pointed me at them, and they were. And they were the most absolutely fastidious background singers and dedicated. They would stay there. I said, oh, that's good. That sounds good. Okay. <laughs> and But they were there hours and hours, right. you know. And you develop an ear for it, which they really had. Mm-hmm. I think the distinguishing, one of the distinguishing things about album number eight, Land of Dreams, in 1988, is that it was autobiographical in a way that your others have not been. Why did you decide to do this? Is it just sort of a new challenge for to yourself? see if I could. Yeah. yeah? So I, this is like. I, and I did. So you've said it, I guess, basically earlier, that in a way it's harder to write as yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's as myself, but there's lies in it. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, it's not precisely autobiographical. I mean, So what about, like, I want you to hurt like I do? <laughs> that's <laughs> Yeah. A- I hope that's not true. I mean, I just was—that song is about having that sentiment. Well, the guy goes too, too far, you know, it's family and children and everybody wants you to hurt like I do. I think that's true of some people. I'm not sure about that. I ran out on my children. And I ran out on my wife. Run out on you too, babe. 
want to ask in terms of number nine of the albums, Bad Love, 1999. That's a good one. It is. And, and the song on there, which I think you've said is, again, one of the ones that you're happiest with is The World Isn't Fair, yeah. where you're essentially looking at the world through the eyes of Karl Marx, of all people. But the here's a case where somebody listening to it might never believe, unless they're going to hear it now from you, what kind of a personal experience could inspire a song about Karl Marx, of all things. Can you share where? Well, my kids were in the process of going to uh, private schools, and we looked at a few and saw some parent meetings. And some of these parents, you're talking about seventh grade they're going into, were rabid. You know, they'd say, how many of your students go to Brown? They'd ask this of this junior <laughs> high school thing. And, and they try and says, well, that's not really the point here, is it? But it was the point to some of these people. I saw one where a guy said, are you going to teach estimating, how to estimate something? And they said, well, I don't know. They didn't know what, because he was, he was adamant about it. Says, it's not right to do that, to estimate. You get the exact number for things. And I thought, whoa, these people are nuts. And it was... It was highly pressurized. You know, God knows what the kids went through, but uh, the parents were, ooh, so, this, was, this was like life and death to them. And how does that lead you to the idea of Karl Marx? Karl Marx was a boy, took a hard look around. He saw people starving all over the place. Well, this was painting this town, blah, 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 blah. Public spirited boy, became a public spirited man. So he worked very hard and he read everything until he came up with a plan. You know, exploitation. Oh, it's cute. I don't know. It's, it's not, I, I haven't run into it yet. That's, but it's it's uh, it's the fact that some people have got it yeah. and some people don't. Yeah. And it's a elemental kind of bad thing, a, a difficult thing yeah. to reconcile. I remember a thing on Saturday Night Live about Dukakis, the mind of Dukakis. As, <laughs> who was he running against? Ford or somebody, yeah. Uh, Bush. Bush, yeah. And Bush was saying, and in his mind, it was saying, how is this guy beating me? <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the ready, no, the counter. That's right. Counter. Of, the, of this one, it yeah. is. Yeah. Carl, you never have seen such a glorious sight as these beautiful women arrayed for the night. Just like countesses, empresses, movie stars, and queens. And they'd come there with men much like me. Froggish men, unpleasant to see. Were you to kiss one, Carl? Marry a prince, would there be? So, because of the characters that you've chosen to adopt in a lot of these songs, there are some people who assume you are a mean, angry guy. No. And I don't think that seems to be the, the case, but I, I do want to read back to you something funny that I read you said once, which was. <laughs> Quote, if I could write, I love you just the way you are, I'd have been happy to have done it, but I would have written the whole thing, and at the end, I'd have gone, you stupid bitch, and blown my chances, close quote. Yeah, yeah. Do you really, is this, is that still just playing a persona, or do you really think, like, you're not, if you sat down and said, I want to write a song like, I love you just the way you are, I bet you could do it. I, I could do it, sort of. But see, I never saw my voice as uh, heroic in any way. 
the guy for thinking of that and saying it is sort of is a hero, and it's romantic flat out. I mean, maybe I could do it if I played along with it like they do for actors in movies. <laughs> uh, you know, Feels Like Home is, is a pretty good song. Yeah. And it's absolutely straight the way it is now. Well, with the with the remaining time, what I want to do is ask you just about some Pixar stuff and then our this amazing 2019 that that is happening for you. So let's start, though, with... How did you and John Lasseter first cross paths? I read it was as far back as 91, and then Toy Story didn't come along until 95, but you've done nine movies for Pixar, nine and yeah, I can read you. Well, I've done four four Toy Story, two Cars, that's six, yeah. And then two Monsters, A Bug's Life, and uh, yeah. So how did this start with John Lasseter? Well, as far as I can recall, it was uh, Chris Montana, told Laster that I'd be a good person to do this picture. So we met, and uh, also I saw him at a storyboard thing that he did. And he had such enthusiasm. You know, I'm a pessimist. probably haven't guessed that. (laughs) But unfortunately, I am. Even though I know that optimism is more valuable to you. You know, if you were, it'd be great if I were, it would cheerfully undertake what I had to do. But I don't. But I wish I did. But I, I can't, can't get myself to do it exactly. But in any case, so I met him before Toy Story 1, I guess. Yeah. I have a quote from him here from years ago saying, before, regarding before he even met you, quote, I used to listen to his music from The Natural and Avalon driving in my car, and he appealed to me because he could not only write emotional music, but music with a sense of humor, close quote. So now Toy Story comes along, and we should note that at that point, Pixar had never made a film before. No. You had never scored an animated film or a family film like no, that I was before. I in the process of doing it, yeah. And, uh, and Pixar, as a kind of unspoken understanding didn't want to be doing what Disney was doing. They didn't want to do musicals. So how do they come to you and and in the sense of what did they what did they want from you if they don't want to do a music centric film? What was the assignment? Well I don't know how they added the extra songs. I think I think they knew fairly fairly early that Buzz was going to jump off the banister and they needed someone to do that. Hence the the natural was of some interest. Mm-hmm. And I think the the front they knew they needed to uh, main title sort of thing. The other song, I th- maybe they added. I'll tell you, the, the, like I, I was saying earlier, there were three animated pictures that I was doing, actually. I was doing James and the Giant Peach. I don't know when that came out, but I remember doing the score, well, but before I did uh, Toy Story, maybe. And uh, I wrote songs for this uh, movie, Cats Don't Dance. And it, it, I thought at first that Toy Story was the least likely to succeed. Really? Yeah. Why is that? Well, I just thought that the others... Chatstone Dance, I didn't know anything about much. Not not much, just about you know what I was doing. But James and the Giant Peach, I thought that it would be successful, you know. I just was lucky I'm not head of a studio. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I came around... They were smart fellows at, at Pixar and decisions they made. But the process is... It's complicated. They know it. Like, I saw a bit of a screening with five to ten-year-olds they did. Now, I can't remember which picture it was mm-hmm. on, but it was five to ten-year-olds. And I saw a little bit of it. And you know you know where the laugh things are. 
no laughs, nothing, just silence. And they came out of there really happy. He says, no, no, that's just the way it is. They laugh when someone falls down, slapstick stuff. But they followed the story. And I think it was Toy Story 2 because it had the song in it that I was worried that kids wouldn't sit still for. The, the Sarah McLachlan. Yeah, but they did. What do you make of the fact that there is, after all these singer-songwriter albums that we've been talking about up to this point, that there is there are now multiple generations of people who certainly know you for that, but then there's multiple generations of people who know you as you've got a friend in me. Yeah. Like, that, they don't even know. The two sides yeah. may not even know That's about each right. other. They don't. Whenever they like me, I'm sort of glad. You know, when I, I went and played uh, a concert with this uh, kid who became popular through the internet, Rex Orange County, yeah, mm -hmm. from England. And I went up on, on stage to do You Got a Friend with him because he was doing, he did that on an album or something. Mm -hmm. And they were, ah, like that. You know, it was like. <laughs> they were into he, it. He, they, yeah, yeah, they were into it so much. That it was like the Beatles playing at Dodger <laughs> Stadium. You know, you know I wanted to feel that. And uh, I mean, I didn't do it for that reason, but it was nice to, yeah. to get something that weird going. <laughs> really. So in 2002, I remember watching this on TV. It's your 16th time being nominated for an Oscar. You have not yet won. And that night, Jennifer Lopez goes up there and announces that you have won Best Original Song for Monsters Incorporated. If I were a rich man With a million or two I lived in a penthouse If I were handsome, it could happen Cause dreams do come true I wouldn't have nothing if I didn't have you You seem like a guy who is hard to rattle or get too emotional But it's I remember watching it and it struck me that you seemed very moved Why, why was that? The orchestra stood up I mean, they, they were glad that I won. People I've worked with uh, much of my working life, some of them. And they told them not to, <laughs> if I won, not to make any show of happiness or whatever the hell they were doing. But I was okay. And then I saw them standing up, and it, it kind of got me. Uh, and I said, Jesus Christ, I'm not going to cry in this, this place, <laughs> am I? But I, I almost did. Yeah. I, I, you know. And then if you... You know it's not reflective necessarily of merit you know it's not your best work necessarily and you know the big deal that's made of it isn't justified but it but it is a big deal to people yeah, it really yeah. is for a day and a half <laughs> and then it happened again a few years later for yeah, toy story 3 right we 
So I want to now take us just in the remaining time through 2019, because I don't know if you've ever had such a diversity of and quantity of crazy things going on at once. But let's start with Toy Story 4, the score and the song. I can't let you throw yourself away. Very big heart tugger. Let's let's start with that. Very successful summer movie with a with another great song for Pixar. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that song. I like that song. It just says what. Got to say, it's like uh, you got a friend in its way. I can't let you throw yourself away. And the score, they said they were glad they had me on it because of the emotional content. I mean, that's what they think I do really well. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some truth in that. Then yeah. It's the best thing I do, maybe. That movie had to keep the ball in the air, I mean, emotionally, for about six minutes. Yeah. Uh, so you had to keep pouring out the schmaltz or whatever <laughs> you know just playing it and uh right. i was satisfied i did it all right yeah don't you want to see the sun come up each morning don't you want to see the sun go down each day don't you want to see that little girl loves you so her heart would break you should go i can't let you i can't let you all right, next thing from this year, you are, of all things, featured on Chance the Rapper's first studio album, <laughs> and I wonder if you can just share how this collaboration, which to some people might seem unlikely, came to, came to be. Well, he said, I think, that he was a fan of mine since he was 13, his father. Uh, appointed him at me and that that was you know that was nice satisfying and he wanted said do you want to uh, do something for the record and I said sure and I went down and it was great it's a totally different style of working than I did they they put it on and they tape everything and they use a lot you know like in the background you know moving a coke can around mm-hmm. uh, accidentally mm-hmm. and so I just kept playing this thing, and I don't know when it was on and when it was off. But we just sung back and forth. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, usually, I don't like the studio. And here, except you're... when it's an orchestra, right? Because here, you're not used to going in a studio and then improvising in the studio, right? No, uh-uh, totally unused to it. People shouldn't think that this is just like out of the blue that you're involved with, let's say, rap, generally speaking, because here's a quote from 1988 that I found, which is kind of amazing. And this is from you in 1988, quote, right now, rap is my favorite pop style because it's like playing tennis without a net. Close quote. And you've always had a bit of a kinship with rappers because it seems like of everybody else in music, they might be the other people who are sort of singing as a persona, right? Yes, I think so. And it's closer to me 
than a regular pop has been by a mile. And there are people doing a character who's not a good guy, you know, on purpose. Yes. Sometimes it's used as an excuse right, right. for saying kill the cops, but they do do that. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm sure there's more that, that I'm not following well. But, I mean, certainly Eminem is a big talent. He was, mm-hmm. and, and Kanye West is too. Mm-hmm. That beautiful, twisted nightmare thing is a great album. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Kanye, or, stuff or, I there. mean, uh, Jay-Z also sampled Baltimore. Yeah, he did. That was a couple of years ago. Okay, so that brings us to Marriage Story, which is this great movie that people are going to be seeing on Netflix and in theaters yeah. you know, in the near future. It's directed by Noah Baumbach. It's your first dramatic score in almost like two decades. Oh, man. I should have done more, but they weren't around. I, yeah. I, 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 the, the offers I had are for cartoons. You th- so you, in a way, a composer can get typecast, too. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So you did work with Noah before on his comedy, Meyerowitz Stories, right. New and Selected. That was two years ago. It's sort of a comedy. It's yeah, a dark, dramedy, very dark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on Marriage Story, how did he explain to you I mean, did you see the movie in this case before you had anything to do with it? When did you come in? Yeah, I'm trying to think. There were big parts of it that I didn't see mm-hmm. that weren't there. But I got the idea. You know. I heard that something you guys talked a lot about for reasons I'll leave to you to explain. The the old French composer, Georges Delarue, why was he a, a consideration? Because he used him in the temp. I thought ill-advisedly. For one thing, it's very French, his stuff. Mm -hmm. And he was obviously scoring a French movie, Mm -hmm. good as he was. And I don't know whether he he ever got from me what he really wanted. I I think even now when you mention it, I think he wanted dynamics to jerk around like uh, Delarue does Mm -hmm. and sloppy outs, you know, get out like a porno. (laughs) <laughs> and he stopped and his stuff and he'll stop playing and yet he's one of the best guys Delarue well and Bump Noah said in the production notes I noticed he said quote we even recorded the orchestra similarly to how Delarue did it in the 60s and 70s Do you, how does that what does that mean that. yeah no, I don't know the engineer well, we knew the, the sound we wanted but it, it, it was really Noah doing that getting the sound he wanted at the end, you know, with the engineer, David Boucher. The movie starts with something like eight minutes of uninterrupted score. Yeah. That's, can you explain why that's unusual and what that's like for you as the composer? Eight-minute montage. This is where they're saying things I like about each other. Yeah, things they like about each other, and uh, there's comedy in it, and there's tenderness in it. It's just a lot. At the outset, there's no doubt about it. The audiences seem fine with it, uh, apparently. But it's difficult, you know, to do. How long does something like that take you? No, I think that took me two weeks. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe more, you know, thinking about things and fixing it and Mm -hmm. orchestration was. Because, you know, that was the first thing, so I didn't have an orchestra yet. I didn't know what I was going to use. I ended up using it, sort of a chamber orchestra which is exposed. You make a mistake, you can hear it. The the movie, as you saw, I know, firsthand in Telluride, where you were there for the North American premiere, it's gone over really well. And I wonder if you can set aside humility for a minute, what is the role that music plays in making this a 
an excellent film. It's an all around excellent film. But what what are you proudest of? What are you happiest with about the music? Well, it requires an emotional sort of job, and I'm I'm satisfied that it does it. I'm satisfied that if the filmmaker wants you to feel pain, uh, you, you, you know, sorrow, what I did might add to that. That's what music can do. Yeah. Uh, make an exciting thing more exciting. Make a romantic thing more romantic. Uh, Last thing I want to do, if we can, is just, we call it rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Who's the greatest singer-songwriter alive today not named Randy Newman? Um, I don't know. Neil Young. Neil Young, okay. Are you tempted to do a Broadway production just to go get the tea and, and finish the EGOT? <laughs> <laughs> no. No? I, I, I don't know whether that's for me. Yeah. I mean, I tried, and I never got past Indiana, you know, right. with Faust. And I liked it. Yeah. But when I think of it now, I, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. They wouldn't like it, maybe. Whose opinions about your music do you actually care about? Well, I care about everyone's. You know, I'll ask anybody. Yeah. Lenny's got other interests now, you know, like, like I do, like being old. <laughs> uh, it was always, it was always uh, Lenny. Uh, now it's uh, Mitchell Froome and Lenny. Mm -hmm. Would you trade all the Oscars, Emmys, and Grammys for a mass following, a larger, you know, like you're saying, a Neil Diamond type thing? And the money that comes with that. Uh, yeah, that would be nice, really. <laughs> you know, but you know, that's an interesting question. I, I I would trade all the award type stuff, but I wouldn't trade my reputation. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty good. Neil Diamonds is pretty good too. He deserves deserves to have it, and he's a great guy. Yeah, but uh, I don't think I I would trade that for that. What's your honest one sentence appraisal of South Park's portrayal of you? It's such a funny show that I can accept it all right. I yeah. mean, uh, it was a funny thing, you know. I mean, I was sensitive about writing all those shuffles I wrote, three-quarter specials. But what the hell? I mean, uh, that's what worked. So by what I'm showing you here in this answer is it bothered me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best cover of one of your songs? The best thing I ever heard was a, not a cover, but I wrote a song for Princess and the Frog. Mm -hmm. And there was a song in it called uh, Maddie's Song. That was her name at the time. And Alicia Keys sung it. Mm. She was sort of trying out for the part, yeah. kind of. And that's the best I've heard. Wow. Another great one that was out is Etta James' version of uh, God's Song. Yeah, yeah. A brave, brave record, yeah. If the world was on fire and only one Randy Newman song could be saved, which would you want it to be? I would want it to be the first cut of the last album, The Great Debate. Yeah, mm -hmm. that would be it. At the end of the day, you know, there's this great debate, speaking of, uh, <laughs> going on right now about Spotify, Apple Music, all this stuff. Is it ultimately a good thing or a bad thing for musicians, the idea of streaming? It was good when it wasn't monetized the way it's getting I don't necessarily think it's a good thing for musicians. Mm -hmm. no. They won't get a piece of the pie. You wrote a song about Vladimir Putin called Putin back in 2016. Yeah. And I understand you subsequently wrote a song about Donald Trump with the hook, What a Dick, close quote. <laughs> Why has that song not been released? Oh, I, I just wouldn't do that. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't good. Wasn't good? good enough. What would your uncles make of the career you've had if they could be sitting here today? They'd be happy for me. And, and uh, they love me. They just didn't 
extend themselves. I mean, it was fine with me. I, I was in, you know, a different field. But uh, Tony and David, I, I don't think they did enough for them. Mm-hmm. Lastly, many years from now when we're all gone, how do you want to be remembered and how do you hope not to be remembered? I, I want to be remembered as uh, one of the best film scores. It's, it's hard. It's going to be hard to give me that because so much of it is animated, which they don't take seriously, but which is harder to do than anything almost. And one of the best of the singer-songwriters. Yeah. Uh, you know, to be in the highest rank there would be good. I, I, that made me happy up down in hell where I'm going to go. <laughs> well, can't thank you enough. This was great. Thank That's you very pleasure. much. Good talking to you. You too. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in.